All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 19. It's a new chapter in the study of Matthew. And as I looked at this for Sunday's message with it being Mother's Day, I kind of had to scratch my head and say, do I really want to preach a passage that's talking about marriage and divorce? And how does that fit with a Mother's Day morning? How does that feel, you know, to, to be hitting something so sober, it just doesn't seem to be right. But I talked to the team this week about it and prayed about it and looked at the text. And by looking at the text, I found that even though your Bible might, as its header, mine says teaching about divorce, this is really not the sum and substance of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus in Matthew 19 is teaching on how to fight for marriage, fighting for marriage. And so when I saw that the text needed to be explained and preached in that way, I began to feel the energy of needing to do it here this morning and saw the appropriateness of it because I could have preached Proverbs 31. We did pray through that text, and that's great on womanhood directly. But if you think about family and marriage it's easy to make the connection to the significance of motherhood and raising children. We need to fight for marriage. And I don't mean by that fight to be married in some sort of idolatrous fashion. I'm saying fight for the institution of marriage in a culture that is doing everything it can do to drive a Mack truck in a collision course direction against Marriage, what it is to fight with marriage, fight for marriage is to fight with and alongside of Jesus. For what he fought for, we want to fight for. Whether you are married, whether you are divorced, whether you are single, never having been married, or now single, having been widowed, or whatever your circumstance is in your life, this is a message that's not a marriage message. It's not a Mother's Day message. It is a marriage to fight for truth. Because to fight for marriage is to fight for the fabric and, and sort of understanding of the culture, biblically speaking. Everything that culture is saying wants to obliterate marriage. It wants to put it in some cultural blender and split, just spit it out in shreds. Culture is saying we don't believe in that because we don't believe in the design of manhood and womanhood. We've sort of let those things go or we're, we're sort of giving the power of self-identity to the children in public schools to say, look... You have no right as a parent to control this issue in the heart of your child. And if a child wants to just dream up that, you know, even though he's a boy, he's a girl, or he's a girl, he's a boy, that's fine. We'll just, we'll, we'll actually, as a government, protect that child against your influence in that regard. That's the culture we live in today. That's not a fantasy doomsday culture. That's today right now in our country. And so we need to, from pulpits, when we come to texts like these, stand for biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, and biblical motherhood for Mother's Day. And let's take it one level deeper, biblical childhood, which is the future. 
All these children are going to outlive us probably, and we want their faith to outlive us, and we want the witness of the, the gospel to outlive us, which all comes back to a text like we're going to look at. Fighting for marriage is fighting for truth, and fighting for truth is fighting for the souls of those who need to hear the truth and believe it. So this is a message that goes back to the beginnings to understand origins. Motherhood begs the question of origin, doesn't it? Without a mom, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) We're here because of a mom. Without a man and that mom coming together in union, we wouldn't be here. There's manhood, there's womanhood, and there's the design of families and the production of children. Every age and every historical era has understood this, and this seems to be sort of unraveling before our eyes in terms of a clear understanding of what is a man, what is a woman, what is marriage, what, are, what is parenting, what is childhood. We're fighting against the culture with the Bible, but really we're fighting alongside Jesus for the truth, which sets people free. It's clarity time. We're all part of a genealogical society. He begat, he begat, he begat all the way back to Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. If you believe the Bible, you believe that. If you are an evolutionist, you don't believe that. If you're a theistic evolutionist, you're on the way to not believing that. It unravels if you don't understand historically that everything began with man and woman at creation. First two humans ever on earth, together making the first marriage in history. You want to talk about being biblically qualified as a one-woman man, which is 1 Timothy 3, a focus on one woman. That was Adam to Eve. There was no other woman. <laughs> he, he wasn't thinking about other women. He thought about one woman. That's the focus of godliness, to be a one-woman man or the husband of one wife. Your wife is the standard of beauty. That's it. That's your perspective. And that comes back to origination of what marriage needs to look like and is. Fathers who highlight fatherhood, which highlights manhood. Children who highlight childhood, which highlights future in society. Women and mothers who highlight motherhood, which highlights womanhood. This all comes back to the established institution that God made where he made marriage. And marriage, by the way, is not government-issued. It's not a government institution, first and foremost. There is governance over marriage, but in its origination, in its purest form, it's God-issued. It's God-designed. He created the church as an institution here and a living organism. He created government to govern um, society. And then he created family and marriage. And culture wants to unravel it. Why? Because it does not want the design that God created. It doesn't want biblical manhood, biblical femininity, and biblical womanhood. It does not want that. It does not want traditional marriage. It does not want children in a home being raised rightly in the Lord. Why? Because to go against the design is to go against the designer and you go against the designer because you don't want the accountability for your sin that's brought to bear by God and his watching eyes on families, on hearts. We have a casual culture 
casual immorality. We have people living together all over the place. Why? Because people want the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. They don't want that. Marriage takes work. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God, this has brought the wrath of God. The judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everybody is suppressing what they know to be true. Oh, you know, um, it's really confusing what a man is. Oh, I'm going to suppress that. It's really confusing what a woman is. Let's suppress that. Why? So I can get away with whatever else I want to get away with in my own idolatrous sins. Today, the culture begs for me to give a clear definition of what marriage really is, right? Here's my definition. Marriage is first and foremost a covenant established by God between one man and one woman, whereby two people respectively and always are God's union between a man and woman who vow before God and witnesses to each other, making a life commitment to love and stay with each other until death. Marriage is defined by God's word as monogamous or exclusive. That's what monogamous means between two heterosexual people alone. It's marriage. I typed that up just out of my head. Why? Because it's so obvious. These are just obvious truths that are from the Bible about what marriage really is. Let me give a diffusing qualifier. I already went there a little bit. This is not a marriage seminar sermon. If you're not married, if you are single, if you've never been married or you're divorced from a marriage, this still all applies to you. You're widowed, you're single, whatever station in life you're in, this applies. This is going to turn into a three-part series. We're going to talk about divorce next week. We're going to talk about singleness the week after. This is for all of us. We're fighting for truth by fighting for marriage. We're fighting alongside Jesus to fight for truth that is originated all the way back to the beginning of time and people and human life. We're fighting against things by doing this. We're fighting against a culture of lust. We're fighting against idolatry. A lot of times people lust for things that are good and turn good things into idols. People want to be married so bad that they sin and they, they lust for it, long for it. They're not content. They don't understand that Companionship is a work of God in your life. Physical satisfaction is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And in the context of holy marriage, people are looking for status. This all works out in um, a a woman that's longing to to have a child or longing to have children. That longing and urge is necessary. It's maternal. It's part of the way God designed you. But something good can turn evil quickly in the heart when you don't get what you want when you want it. It's idolatry too. These godly desires have to be held in check. These urges need to be rightly channeled. You're either operating in the flesh or the Holy Spirit in these things. There's only one true source of satisfaction, married or unmarried, and that's the Holy Spirit. You could be married, you can still have a lustful heart, you can still wish more, wish other, wish you had, wish you had, and that can equally be idolatrous sin. So whether you're inside a marriage or outside of a marriage, single or longing for something, you're either doing that by the Holy Spirit where you're submitted to the sovereignty of God or you're in lustful idolatry battling with your own heart against what you wish you had. Staying in a marriage is also no guarantee 
This too can become a soul-crushing idol. Saying in certain marriages when you're supposed to let go can be wrong-headed. And Christ addresses all these things. We're going to look at that next time. There's also the call to singleness. That's something that is uh, really missed, I think, in scriptural understanding. Singleness can be a beautiful thing. Paul was single. Christ was single. Christ is the perfect man, the perfect male, the perfect vision of masculinity. Single. Paul followed Christ in that same way, being fully freed, undivided attention, wholeheartedly given to the Lord. Women in the Bible can be biblically, there could be a biblical vision of singleness there as well. It's not a lesser status, a lesser identity, a lesser calling to be single, to be freed in ministry. In that way, if you rightly understand it, there are those who are widowed who shouldn't remarry perhaps. And there are those who are widowed, according to 1 Timothy 5, that, are, that should be married as a way to curb temptations. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. All scripture is profitable. This is profitable for you, what we're going to look at this morning. That's the case I'm trying to make. I want you to pay attention to this because it's so important. Because culture setters, like the Pharisees during Jesus' day, like the culture setters of today, are trying to undo everything that I'm talking about. Everything I'm talking about is like, whoa, it's sort of out of bounds. Hey, stay in your lane, dude. Don't talk too, uh, too freely about these things. I'm just talking from the Bible as if I'm a first grader. Just, hey, this is what a man's like. This is what a woman's like. This is what a family's like. This is what the Bible says. God made that. God made them. This is not difficult stuff. It's very simple. It's very boilerplate. I'm actually encouraged to preach in a society like this because you can just bring the simple stuff and it's like, oh, wow, he's saying heavy things. It's just simple. But people are living together, sleeping together. People are practicing practical polygamy by just going online and lusting after image to image to image to image. I'm stealing on parts of the sermon that's coming, but it's just, it's, this is where we are. People are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18, they want to suppress it because they don't want the design and they don't want the designer's accountability of the design that brings the accountability of the right path to be in for life. So Jesus is confronting the culture and this confrontation becomes very, very offensive. It's on the last lap of his three years. He's um, heading down towards Jerusalem and things are heating up. What is marriage? Marriage is a picture of Christ to the church. If you're a Christian, you are part of the marriage conversation, whether you are married or not. You are the bride of Christ. And, and you're part of a great drama from Genesis to, to Revelation that culminates at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're going to be at that feast Enjoying God and Christ at the wedding culmination at that marriage supper. That's what Ephesians 5 is talking about. I always wondered why there's so few passages that directly address marriage. There's a handful of them that why Ephesians 5 talks so much about Christ and the church and kind of intertwines it. And where's the practical applications? As I read through, I always wondered that way. Incidentally, if you call marriage friendship, which in Song of Solomon, it says, uh, the companion says, you are my beloved and friend, then you can apply all of the friendship passages through all the Proverbs and all of the scripture to marriage. So there's a lot to be brought to bear in marriage. But listen to this specific text, 
how Paul compares Christ and the church to marriage and intertwines it. Ephesians 5.21, listen. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself, its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Stop there. Is Paul just saying, hey, you know, the illustration for hard submission or, or good headship, that's all, you know, let's do a way big Bible lesson about Christ in the church so that we can practically apply this in the home. No, what he's doing is he's saying, A husband and a wife is a big parable of what God is really doing, what we should ultimately really care about, which is Christ in the church. That's what he's doing here. In the same way, husbands love your wives, um, should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Every family, every marriage, every husband and wife that's brought together is this like little microcosmic, you know, display of the greater vision of God in Christ, loving a people with a covenant commitment forever that applies to married, single was married, now not married, never married yet. Everybody, that you, if you are in Christ, you are part of that greater marriage. Every smaller marriage hangs in there to portray that, if God wills. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's all marriage language to give a greater vision. What does this mean? Well, fighting for marriage looks like this. Fighting for marriage means holiness, not worldliness. That's what you love. You love, you're not given over to lust. You believe in creation, not evolution. You believe in creation. God is the author of this. For society, you believe that, not chaos. You believe in biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. You believe in the dignity of children and raising children. You also, if you're looking at this biblically, Fighting for marriage is fighting for the church as Christ's bride. You're fighting for Christ as Savior who washed his bride. It's a picture of washing the church. You're fighting for Christ's soon and coming return for his bride. And you're fighting for heaven as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven doesn't have marriage. Jizz, I should say. It is the ultimate one marriage of the covenant people to the bride of Christ. And I used to always kind of struggle with that. Why is, you know, why are we married? And it's so important down here, but we're just individuals up in heaven. It's because marriage is temporary and it's a temporary form of commitment that represents God's commitment to us in Christ that matters more and most that Satisfaction comes by being in the Holy Spirit, whether you're singled or single or married. And ultimately, when we're in heaven, we're ultimate, we're sinless and we're in the Holy Spirit and we're enjoying God with ultimate apex satisfaction that can't compare to anything down here on earth. 
That's why Jesus said to the Sadducees in Matthew 22, 30, for in the resurrection, by the way, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given to marriage. Meaning all believers neither marry in heaven or given, are given in marriage in heaven, but are like the angels in heaven, just fully free to worship and enjoy the Lord, enjoy fellowship in a way that we can't even imagine hardly here on earth. All right, that was all prologue. Let's get into the text. We'll have a few minutes. Matthew 19. Let me read verses 1 to 6. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus here, he's, as I've said, is on the final lap of his ministry. He's heading southward towards Jerusalem, and he's going Transjordan from Galilee. It would have been 70 miles walking down. And he's in an area, according to Mark's parallel, uh, that's called Perea, which is a, um, an area that was um, led by Herod Antipas. And we talked about him um, when we were in the context of John the Baptist. That's significant. I mean, that Matthew's putting us in this region of Judea where Jesus has just finished these things. He's talked about the kingdom values that we've been talking about. He talked about all those things. Verse 1. And now he's moving away from Galilee. He's moving into a more hostile territory where the marriage question, hey, can you divorce for any reason, is volatile and it's political. Because remember, Herod Anabas took John the Baptist's head off, literally, for confronting him because he had sort of initiated a divorce against his brother-in-law, um, Herod Philip. And Herod Philip due north had a wife, Herodias, that Antipas was interested in. So he provoked a divorce and married Herodias. And then John the Baptist preached against it, got himself jailed. And then ultimately Herodias' daughter um, gave the order, you know, through what happened um, for John the Baptist to lose his head. So the Pharisees, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get this to repeat with Jesus. We want... John's gone, we want Jesus gone. That's what's happening here. And so we're going to ask a very volatile question and public question about divorce. And we're actually going to cite Moses and the law to see how Jesus will move in this interpretation. That's what's happening. Large crowds are gathered, verse 2. They're following and Jesus is healing them. Why is that important? It's to just say that here's Jesus' mercy, mercy ministry. He's still healing, still bringing about, you know, gospel medication basically like where there there is no there is no pharmacology that's sophisticated like today so people when they're sick they they needed a healer on a massive scale and so Jesus is doing that work doing that ministry and that's not good enough for the Pharisees they want to undermine Jesus because he's fighting for truth he is the truth and his very presence is evoking this kind of attack because he's bringing accountability his mercy is bringing accountability, and ultimately his words are bringing accountability. And the Pharisees, as culture, culture setters, want to shut that down. 
Just like the liberalism of our day, we want to shut down anything conservative, anything clear, and ultimately anything that's going to be biblically defined here, like masculinity, femininity. Accountability is spiked by the conscience here. It's spiking their consciences. So they're challenging. So they're trying to trap Jesus with this political, like, vice grip getting Christ to either compromise one way or the other. And they do it by citing Deuteronomy 24. And I get that. and It's a passage we're not going to look at this morning, but verses 7 and 8. This section is all verses 1 to 12. We're only covering 1 to 6. But in verses 7 and 8, uh, there's a reference to Moses. Why then did Moses command one to get a certificate of divorce? That's, the, that's Deuteronomy 24 that they're referencing as a rebuttal on what Jesus is going to say. And so this first question that they're asking is coming from Deuteronomy 24. They're trying to leverage Moses against Jesus publicly. And what they ask is, is it lawful, verse 3, to divorce one's wife for any cause, to sever, to divorce, to split this marriage contract by any co- for any cause? It's a test. It's coming from the Pharisees. What, do you, what say you, Jesus. Deuteronomy 24, this is what they're building their case from. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. You can stop there. That's what we're talking about. Any indecency in her. Does that mean that anything goes? How do you define any indecency that gives the ali ali oxen free opportunity? You can just divorce on a whim. That's, that's what they're asking. Is, is that the case? Because if Jesus says, yes, it's anything, then it has immediately unraveled marriage and lowered the standard and just obliterated all truth. And if, on the other hand, he says, no, that's not the interpretation at all, then he will have trapped himself under Herod Antipas and should be jailed for that kind of public comment. The context here is not opening the door, but it's, it's narrowing the, 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 the window of divorce by giving... Um, This scenario, if you'll follow with me, Deuteronomy 24, any indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance what this is here is it's law but it's case law it's where one thing is leading to another if if one marriage fails because of her immorality that was found and then a divorce proceeding takes place and then she's remarried and then that doesn't work in another scenario and another scenario, then she can't hit the reset button again because defilement is permanent in the case of Old Testament law. That's what it's talking about. The disgrace is so bad that you can't go back to the reset in this scenario. 
And so they're trying to apply that to say, look, you know, this is all just contracts that you can make and break. Is that what we're talking about? Is it any cause that you can make or break? No. The indecency here should be ramped up to a high level of hard-hearted, unrepentant immorality that causes a divorce. Equating any cause to some indecency here in a broad way would be what the rabbi school of Hillel was doing where they said if the wife burned dinner, then that's grounds for divorce. I have no follow-up. I need to go home and eat. You know, that's fine. We don't burn things. Deuteronomy 24 is actually the opposite thing. It's talking about egregious cases of sin, serious cases of abject, hard-hearted, unrepentant immorality. Leviticus 20 verse 10 talks in the ultimate sin. If a man, in, in an ultimate sense, if a man commits adultery with, his, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. That was old covenant Execution for something that that is clear and defiling. So haphazard divorce would be nowhere in the realm of this kind of tone and tenor of Deuteronomy 24 or Leviticus chapter 20. We're not talking about whimsical divorce. Divorce here in that case with Leviticus 20.10 meant death. That's an ultimate and permanent divorce. It's finalized forever. But an act of indecency of Deuteronomy 24 would be broader than something that ultimate. Um, When adultery was brought up in every case, it didn't mean the death penalty. Think of Joseph with Mary who was betrothed to Mary. And in that marriage covenant commitment already with each other legally, and then she was found to be with child, Joseph was trying to put her away privately and divorce her privately, but for for mercy's sake, to not shame her. She wasn't brought before, you know, any sort of punitive act, but, but that wasn't the death penalty. And when David committed adultery and was found out, he wasn't killed. So some of this is case by case, I'm sure. And this is, these are extreme moments of discretion with the Old Testament law. But the Pharisees are just trying to trap Jesus by twisting the truth and saying, hey, this is any indecency or any case, um, in any situation, any cause, verse 3, is, is it allowable? It's a grounds on a whimsical level. Well, today's culture wants grounds like that, right? Um, it's a culture of gender confusion, as we've talked about. It's legalizing lust. It's, it's empowering and weaponizing children to hold their parents hostage with what they believe they are to reject truth. And what Jesus does to combat this is go back to the beginning. Look how he answered. Instead of answering directly, Jesus just answers um, indirectly with a direct connection back to the beginning. Verse 4 says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This goes back to the beginning. God's in charge of a male and a female being created in the first place. You're trying to get me to off-ramp um, into some sort of debate, and I'll just bring you back to the beginning. Verse 5, therefore, he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In the beginning, 
You have a man, you have Adam, you have a woman who is Eve. And so it's the most natural thing in the world, verse 5, therefore for that man and that woman to come together, and it's natural and it's replicated over and over in society where a man and a woman come together and they are leaving a father and mother and holding fast to the wife. Why is that significant? Well, it's what Jesus is saying would be jarring language, even though it's biblical language, and he's going back to what Moses wrote in Genesis, just like he wrote what he wrote in Deuteronomy. He's saying, let's go back a few books in the Bible earlier, and let's create the foundation for the understanding of Deuteronomy 24, where it's a man and a woman, and God was in charge of creating them, and he made them to come together. God was in charge of that union. And that union is so significant because it was a man and a woman who are leaving and cleaving. They're literally coming out from under the, the station of life and influence of being under parents where you are obeying them and you're in an obedience model where now you are transferring to a new model of marriage where it's union between two people becoming one. The most significant influence in most of the world's culture for children, the number one influence in the life of a child or even a young adult is a parent or parents until you come into a new category of influence, which is a spouse. And that's what's pictured here. For the Jew, heritage was everything. I am of Abraham. I am of Isaac. I am of Jacob. They're thinking genealogically, that's my identity. What Jesus is saying, hey, remember that a marriage is formed with the greatest of gravity because you're coming out from under one influence as, as a Jew and you're coming together to be under this co-influence that's new and deeper and richer. I just... Uh, kind of illustrate that. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned this many times. I was raised in a, a home with parents, Christian parents, with one older brother. So everything was pretty neat and tidy. Um, the only you know, new variable that was introduced ever in my life was uh, we had a dog. You know, it's like, that's the chaos in our life. And, uh, but, but I married someone wholly different from that sort of model where when Judy and I were talking about being married and we were engaged at this point, I said, you know, how many kids do you want to have? I was thinking, wow, we'll be crazy and have a third kid, you know. That'll be nuts. <laughs> Judy says, uh, five? I mean, just that number came out of her mouth. And I just remember thinking, we're already engaged. Like, what, what? And, and then, <laughs> then, it, then, she, then she followed six. <laughs> and so she predicted what was reality. But see, that, that became the influence in my life to say, I need to open my heart and open my life to, you know, kind of the, the Kratz household that, that God gave us, which was a lot of kids, a lot of variables, a lot of unpredictability, a lot of things that you can't control, and you have to learn to be flexible. It changes the way that you are. That's a new influence. That's the influence of one flesh relationship different than the household that I had before. And God is in charge of this. He created male and female. We talked about that both physically. There is a difference between male and female, but they're both made in the image of God, as we can verify from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Co-equal heirs, co-regents that come together, coldly different by design, but perfect in coalescence and oneness as they meld together in heart, mind, soul, body. It's the priority of the new relationship. Your friend becomes one with you. 
So that's, uh, there was a combating of truth, attacking marriage is attacking truth. That was verses one to three. Verses four to six is defending marriage is defending truth. And Jesus is defending marriage because he's defending truth. He's defending the truth of the design. He's defending the truth of the designer. And it says in verse four, he created them from the beginning. In verse five, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cling to his wife. This is a physical union, physical union where the two were automatically attracted to one another. For Adam, Eve is the standard of womanhood. For Eve, Adam is the standard of manhood. And this is God's original, God-created male and female design. It's the template for what it's supposed to be look like, to look like. And it's normal. This is normal speak about life. Marriage is monogamous by design. Two people meant to cohere as puzzle pieces. In Old Testament Hebrew, in the account of Genesis, man is called Ish and woman is called Isha. I mean, it's as if you have man who out of his side was, was pulled part of his flesh, the rib away, and, and the one man became two individuals, both made in the image of God so that then they could find each other again and be one flesh. It's the picture here. That's what God does. What Jesus is doing is he's striking the note of God in the moment. Jesus is God, but he's going to God's word, quoting Genesis to say, listen, the question you're asking me that you think is a political question or an easy out or some loophole from Deuteronomy 13 to weaken and lower the standard of marriage, to give an ali ali oxen free for the culture to go crazy, that question has to be brought to bear before God. That's what Jesus is doing. This all has to be brought circumspect to God and God's word. Moses wrote this in Genesis. We are designed by God. There is a designer here watching you as you ask that question. You have to contend with God, the creator, when you start to tread on this question. Significant. We're not just talking about how to do well in marriage here. This is not that. This is defending truth. It's fighting for truth, fighting alongside of Jesus, fighting against the polygamy of our world. You say, isn't that relegated to the Old Testament kings that did weird things and we don't understand concubinage and all that stuff? Yeah. I mean, the original design of marriage is Adam and Eve and any deviation from that template, which many kings did, was sin. But this is a sin that's replicated through internet pornography. It's it's replicated through people living together, pretending to be married. John 4, when Jesus uh, confronted the woman at the well, the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands. Did she literally have five husbands? No, she was just immoral with five different men. And the one you have now is not your husband, Jesus says. What you've said is true, she says. This is what we're confronting when we raise high the banner of truth and how it is supposed to be. Jesus said, they're no longer two, but one flesh, verse six. They're one. And then he says, because they're one, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let let not man separate. Um, the Greek word is karizato, let not man divorce. It can be translated that way. 
Let no man, this is not for man to decide. God is the originator of male and female. God is the originator of marriage. He brought them together. God is who put them together as one flesh. He decides when there's appropriate divorce. We're going to talk about divorce next time. It's a, in the context of a mercy, and it's a, it's a sad thing, but it is also a mercy in Scripture. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how it's a, a merciful concession. And then the week after, we're going to talk about how singleness is, um, is a rare but beautiful um, opportunity. So... All these things are, are loaded in my mind and in my, my heart for those two times. But what we're talking about here is fighting for marriage is fighting for truth. The reason you fight for marriage is that marriage is built on God's creative design. It's, it's actually flying in the, whole, in the face of survival of the fittest. It's, it's coming against the abortion culture. The ability to just wipe out life in the womb or try to prevent life in the womb. All these, these dynamics um, where, con- where conception is taking place to stop that process is wrong. God brings people together. God, God is the author of every marriage. You say even unchristian marriages, well... All we know from Scripture is that Christians are to marry in the Lord. That's what we are biblically called to do. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 14 talks about all of that. Retrospectively, I can tell you, I know the Lord brought Judy and I together. We were both uh, raised in Christian homes, um, which isn't required for every marriage, right? You just have to believe. You have to be a believer. We met on the West Coast, became friends, and married and seeing that providence is what sets the stage for the marathon that you're called to run. God brought us together, and so that's why you run the, the race. And you do it for the glory of God because it's a picture of Christ and his church. Let no man separate. Divorce is not man's decision. It's what does God's word say? What does God say about your life and your situation? Fighting for marriage is fighting for truth because fighting for truth in this case is fighting for the original design of manhood and womanhood and God being sovereign over all of that. And when you do that, guess what you're doing? You're evangelizing a culture that doesn't want to hear it. But some people will and some people will believe. And that's why we do this. Mother's Day is a day to honor moms. It's a day to honor womanhood. It's to honor sacrifice and passing the faith on. And we need to stand firm in our homes and raise the banner and say manhood, womanhood, childhood is biblically defined and we worship the Lord who defined it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word. Thank you for the truth. And we thank you that we can commune with you now with the gospel elements. Lord, we thank you for the merciful concessions that are found in scripture and the preferred exception of singleness that's found in scripture these are wild and radical ideas in 
the context of worldliness. But God, as we submit to your truth, I pray we would learn and be teachable to how the Bible sets our culture and our thinking in a world that flies in the face of it. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for Christ who has redeemed us and called us to this new understanding of being spiritually minded when we are saved. And we thank you that we can um, examine ourselves now and take some time to repent of sin in our own hearts, to make um, new commitments, not out of our own flesh, but out of the reassurances of your promise that you're always with us. So Lord, because you're with us, we want to grow. Because you love us, we want to seek you more. Because you love us, we want to commit to our spouses or we want to commit to holiness and our singleness. We want to commit to be better parents and followers of you. We want to repent of our sins where we've fallen short. Trusting in the once for all sacrifice of Christ that's already bought us, already made us new and whole. We thank you for this time of communion with you.